Paul, I've got a question for you, though, um, as we begin. I have an answer, perhaps. What are you going to do with your shot? <laughs> Shoot it. Throw it away. I feel like I'm, I'm throwing it away right now during this podcast. Oh, a grim way to begin the show. <laughs> Paul feels he is throwing away his life ambitions by doing this podcast with me. Here I am. Here I am in my office, staring at a microphone, staring at your face. It feels like my shot is, is gone. At some point, you know, Paul's going to write the next great American novel. In 50 years, it's going to be turned into, there's going to be a movie about him like there was about David Foster Wallace. And this will be a sort of a pivotal scene in the downward trajectory of Paul's character where 2020 we're in the middle of the global pan COVID-19 pandemic and he's stuck in his air conditioning free office right. talking with a mouthy, no ne'er do well, no good, no at all. And he finally realizes he's found his true pain from which his novel will stem. Here it is. The bottom. The very bottom. <laughs> As he says, I'm throwing away my shot. Shot, shot. If that was too subtle for all of our friends, today's podcast is Hamilton. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I am Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. We are returning to the uh, a, a an area of pop culture that has, I think I've talked about, Paul, is not necessarily my favorite. <laughs> and that is the realm of movie musicals. Movie musicals. Ironically enough, considering you performed in a few musicals yourself, right? It's true. I, it's true. I uh, performed well. Specifically, I did several in my youth. I did, um, ad you know, humorous adaptations of Cinderella, uh, Rumpelstiltskin, and then later uh, was in Fiddler on the Roof in high school. So I have done musicals, and I and I I like going to musicals in to watch them. I've gone in not on Broadway, but in theaters, acted out on stage. I've gone and seen. Uh, Les Miserables and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Beauty and the Beast and several others. So I, I don't mind the musical theater, but I'm not a big fan of musical movies. Why is that, do you think? Why do you not like musical movies? Well, as we've kind of touched on a few times, I think part of it is that in a movie, I I'm more critical of how the story is drawn along throughout the course of the runtime and how our characters advanced or storylines developed. And in movies, when I'm watching at home or in theaters, I want them to be, they don't have to be exactly linear, but I want them to advance in a meaningful way. Even if it's a, even if it's a Christopher Nolan film like Memento, that isn't go strictly linear. What's that? Just switching all the time. You're, you're, timeline the whole bit exactly it's not strictly linear but it's the story is told in such a way that advances the character and the plot in a unique and clever way and oftentimes i feel movie musicals uh, musicals in the movies 
it's the same when they're on stage, but I have less patience for the interruption that I feel a lot of the songs tend to be. Hmm. In a stage context, I don't mind because I'm there for the experience. I'm surrounded. I'm in the theater. There's the live aspect of it. It's sort of like an art version of live sports, right? Things can go wrong. Performances are different. Actors maybe make different choices show by show and how they deliver a line or, you know, with what happens, there's an element of that experience that I enjoy and I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm, it's the medium. I'm okay with it being different. When it's on screen, I'm I'm less inclined to have the patience for it. Mm. Interesting, interesting. So Hamilton was like a perfect blend for you, because Hamilton was fa- a fascinating blend of how you can use the music, and entirely the music and lyrics to advance the plot. Yeah, it was almost an opera, which I've not really spent any time watching, but yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think the fact that it was a stage production that was filmed as opposed to an actual movie that would have just been based on the production, did that help at all or no? Uh, it did, and it didn't entirely solve it either. But we'll dig into that when we when we do a deep dive into Hamilton. Because the other thing we're going to be talking about today, because of Hamilton, and this it was a great question and a great segue, is we're going to talk about our favorite or the best in the case of my definitive ranking, it's got, it's the best, not my favorite. Just the best. <laughs> yeah. My opinion, Paul's opinion is that his art, when he gives his opinion, he gives his list. That's his favorite. For me, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Thus the know-it-all. Thus the know-it-all. Uh, but our favorite Broadway adaptations that have been transported to the screen. And, and we'll talk about the good and the bad and the ugly in all of that. And of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we always love and not sarcastically, love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing. (laughs) But now it's time to segue into Hamilton. As the music has played, the stage has transformed around Paul and I. We've moved into the next set piece to move this podcast along, except we're not singing. So it's not exactly a, a true Hamilton recreation here. Sing! 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 Or and that's a great example of how song is not progressing the plot. <laughs> I, moved, I moved the podcast forward a little bit with that. I'm like the one... Forward. I think the one that will probably forever stick in my mind until I find another example that's better is the huge musical set piece inside Singing in the Rain, um, where it just gets Don't, what? Not I am. I'm saying I never forget it. What's the song called? Oh, what is that song called? I know exactly the one you're talking about. It's the one with the big old scarf that flows and yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's like America on or American somewhere. It's, uh, let's see here. I'm pulling up the list. It's called, um, this is good radio here. What is it called? <laughs> I'm not even seeing it on this list. <laughs> Broadway Ballet. Broadway Melody? Nope. Broadway, Broadway Ballet? Broadway. Ballet. Not Ballet. 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 You know, I tell you what. Sing it. Anyways. It's such a good musical. Such a good musical. Aside from my, my brain fart. Uh, the part, it, it was this song that gets stuck in the middle of this film that feels completely irrelevant to the plot or the characters to the, and is so long that 
when you finally get back to the real world, I legitimately had to think what was happening <laughs> in the movie, in the storyline before we went away on this five minute excursion of nothingness. It was, um, it was admittedly my least favorite part of the movie, but you have to remember it was a movie about talky musicals. It was a fantasy world in a way in, in, in that they were bringing this stuff to the screen. Right. So it, it totally fits in with the, with the feel of the movie. Uh, maybe, but not in a helpful way. <laughs> fits in doesn't always mean it needs to be there. That's why you need a good editor. But uh, <laughs> Hamilton does not suffer from that problem. Hamilton is singing start to finish and at an incredible rate are the lyrics delivered. Whew. Yes. So much so that I think in the very first 10, 15 minutes, it's really hard to follow actually all the lyrics that are speeding by you. And there's a lot of information that, that goes into Hamilton. Backing up a little bit. Hamilton obviously has been a cultural phenomenon since 19 or, or 2016 um, when Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, read this biography that I've also actually read um, called Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Um, fantastic biography, really fascinating, brings to light, I think, one of the founding fathers that most of us really didn't know very much about. I mean, I never learned about him in school. He never became president. We know that he landed on the $10 bill for some reason, but why? You know, he was always sort of this mysterious character. Um, the Cherno biography helped bring Hamilton to life, and we learned a lot of very interesting things about him. He was an immigrant. He came to New York. He didn't have a dime. He just was brilliant. And one of the brilliant things about the musical is that uh, Miranda brings all this to the stage in a really interesting unique, innovative musical form. I mean, one of the things that I truly appreciated it having read the biography is that there was a lot of really good history in this musical, you know, um, really kind of a, a, that in itself, I think is an achievement. Yeah. It feels like when you got that, when you had that cool young teacher as maybe a middle school or high schooler, and they just had a unique and creative way to try to explore these stories and you weren't quite sure at first if it was hokey or if you were into it, but then all of a sudden you find that you're into it and darn it, I'm learning a lot at the same time. Yeah, no, it's true. I thought that the second half, honestly, my favorite parts were the stupid debates between Hamilton and Jefferson, which, which were fascinating. It, it takes, it takes the form of these rap battles, right? But man, it just seemed from what I know of history and I don't know very much, but it felt really accurate to what I had read in the biography, just just how much detail, how much accuracy they were able to get in this super entertaining format. Right. And and the talent and skill level that, that it takes to do such a thing. I think I mentioned the speed with which the information is delivered. Somebody actually went through some of the most famous and well-known Broadway musicals in history and looked at the total words and the length of the music in these different Broadway plays to look at the average words per minute for each of them. The number two on the list is uh, called Spring Awakening, and it beats number three on the list, 77 words per minute to 68 words per minute. Phantom of the Opera was at 68, Spring Awakening, 77. Hamilton, 144 <laughs> words per minute. Man, oh, man. It almost doubles it. Like the next Phantom of the Opera has the most total words on this list at 6,789. Hamilton, 20,520. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. 
That's incredible. That's almost the length of a biography right there. And it explains why I, I, I had to review this for, for my day job, right? One of the things that I have to do is, is keep in mind the swear words that might come by. It was really tricky just to follow everything that was going on in there, just because the words, it felt like a machine gun. It felt like getting history through a fire hose in a way. Um, but you didn't mind because it was so gosh darn entertaining. Yeah, it's catchy. And the char- the actors brought this level of levity to a serious subject matter that I was not quite expecting in in this format, in all of this song and dance, like the personality that they're able to bring to characters through the song and dance, the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda used different cadences uh, to help you understand different things about different characters. Different musical um, forms, even, depending on right. what felt more appropriate for for the time it slips into this nice r&b when it talks about hamilton's uh dalliance with another woman it felt very sultry because of it i just it really worked well in terms of that yeah um and and so what i think what you end up left with is something that is sneakily to your point very enlightening to a character that by all accounts or by most accounts was highly influential in the systemic foundation of the United States of America. Um, and yet somebody that tends to be more of a footnote right. in the narrative arc that most of us get in our textbooks uh, to the point where my wife, as she was watching this was like, why did he make a Hamilton? Like what, why did he make a Hamilton musical? What is the inspiration for that? Like, it seems utterly ridiculous and yet it works yeah it totally does and i think one of the things that that is so powerful about it is it really hamilton the character hamilton the the historical character in many ways um embodies embodies what it's always meant to be an american right he embodies some of those american ideals now i think you can argue with the politics that he had at the time because you know the, the big showdown between hamilton and jefferson was about Big, big government, small government, whether you wanted to be uh, urban society or rural society, there was all that going on. Um, but when you look at Hamilton, the person himself, the idea that he came from the Caribbean, you know, he was born in the Caribbean. He was born without a father, um, without a penny to his name, managed to find a way because actually it says in, in the biography, I'm not sure if it said this in the in the musical, but, but they took up a collection essentially to send him because he clearly had a lot of upstairs. He had a lot of brain power and they didn't think it should go to waste. And so he made his way to America, started from scratch and became one of the most influential people in American history. And I think that 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 really speaks deeply to how we think about ourselves as Americans. You know, I, I think ideally, whether this is always the case or not, ideally, we imagine ourselves as people who live in a country where hard work and talent can get you anywhere. Um, If you can work hard enough, if you can dream big enough, it's there for the taking. You're not restricted by social barriers. You're not not restricted by by class or race or whatnot. And we all know that there, there are some real barriers that you have to do, yet Hamilton speaks to the dream that I think that we all have for America. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was so resonant. And one of the reasons why I think the way it was told makes it even more resonant, you know, being told by by a cast that's predominantly not white, being told with a variety of musical styles. I think that that just sort of speaks to, I don't know, the optimism that I think that we all like to have for the United States itself. 
Yeah, I think that's partially why it's gotten some of the flack that it has upon re-release. So I'm sure some of that was there when it was first released and I just wasn't paying attention because I don't follow Broadway musicals. <laughs> but I think some have found it to be overly optimistic and try and critiqued Lin-Manuel Miranda for perhaps too rosy of a, a portrait of Hamilton, which is saying something because Hamilton, I think, uh, with without spoilers, um, just based on the history, yeah. was not always... Uh, it was often a villain. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that he's arguing for, especially in the second half of the play that to your, to your point about sort of the economic framework of the United States that maybe a lot of us would look at and say, Oh, I don't agree with that. And then the way he treats other people and say, Oh, he, he is more villainous than, uh, than I think, than maybe I realized because I didn't realize that much about him. Yeah. And I I think that's one of the beauties of this play. I mean, one of of the things that I I really liked about it is, you know, Hamilton is definitely the hero of Hamilton, right? Definitely talks a lot about his, his, what's really good about it, but it doesn't shy away from some of his problems. It doesn't shy away from the fact that he was hugely ambitious. It, It doesn't shy away that he had a, he had a hair trigger temper. Um, it, it fleshed him out in a way. A massive ego. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that, that when I think of the founding fathers, right, so often we just see them on money. We see them in their powdered wigs. We see them in these marble statues. And especially, you know, our biggest founding fathers, Washington especially, we lose sight that they were real people. This movie brings out not only flaws, but but fleshes them out as people. I think that's one of the things that I actually enjoyed about Hamilton the most was how they portrayed George Washington in it. Because you just always see him. He's never smiling in any of his pictures. Never. He always feels like he's just this stiff, firm, reticent person who we all have to respect because he's the founder of the country, right? But But Hamilton brings him to life in a way that feels really resonant to me. I think that that almost more than anything, I, I loved how they depicted Washington. They turned Jefferson into this sort of weird, foppish <laughs> dandy, you know, in, in a way where where he was pretty full of himself too. And I'm sure that that was probably true. Um, they turned Aaron Burr, who is often the villain of the, of the history, into this much more complex character, which I really appreciated. Um, gave him a lot of nuance that you just don't see elsewhere. And, and I, I, I think that that's another area where the play, the, the musical really worked. Yeah. And the way it used the stage and the uniqueness of a stage environment um, to really make some fascinating storytelling choices. Uh, the way they even used a, um, a rewind through time sequence. That was amazing that was brilliant with the way they use stage direction and positioning and the timing of the music and the placement of characters to completely retell parts of the story that you had already seen in a new way from a new angle, from a different point of view. Yeah. Right. Um, was, was fascinating. And one of the more clever uses of a stage uh, that I've seen and something that I really appreciate in storytelling is when storytellers take the medium that they have chosen to work with and they find ways to, uh, to turn it on its head and to do some unique things with it that what uh, you wouldn't maybe be possible in another medium. Yeah. Um, and they did that with that. They did that with the frozen moment of time sequence during the Aaron Burr yeah. uh, Hamilton duel um, as well as with, uh, Hamilton's son, like they just did some really fascinating things 
from a really what feels at first like a very bare bones set. Yeah, there's no real setting at all. I mean, it just looks like it takes place in this warehouse with balconies and the whole bit. But in some ways, what you're talking about there with the freeze frame and with the, the, the rewind in time, I think it gets back to your earlier point, which I was a little tempted to laugh at. But I think as you bring this up, I think you have a valid point. It works on stage where it wouldn't work on film. You can do these creative things some for some reason on stage that would feel false or hokey or just not work when you're dealing with, with, a, with a film that is trying to show things in a more realistic manner. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I, I, I think um, the closest that perhaps I've seen it done in a film that I can think of off the top of my head is with um, Hugh Jackman and the circus movie, which was called The Greatest Showman. Greatest Showman um, where they did a really creative job of bringing these more modern songs and vibes into a period setting and allowing the characters to break into dance and show and dance in ways that did not feel as inorganic uh, and kept the, the movie going. Um, so it's not that it's necessary, but it, it, it is harder. I think like some of us appreciate it and some of us don't. And when you're in those period pieces, you know, you're trying to deal with the grittiness of, the revolutionary war and its prelude and what came after. And then all of a sudden they're dancing and singing and Thomas Jefferson is high stepping and flopping his Afro around, you know, and that, yeah, on screen, you, I think we just, the medium makes a difference in that regard. Yeah. We have a different interest and in, uh, tolerance for that type of showmanship on stage that is harder to, yeah. to nail down on film. I think that we always are, whenever we, encounter a bit of entertainment there's always a level of suspension of disbelief that we have to engage in i mean and that's with movies television whatever you have to embrace things that you wouldn't necessarily deal with very well in real life it's just the nature of, of story time right but i do think that with theater for whatever reason almost anything goes you know we can we can deal with incredible flights of fancy that just feel completely organic on stage, but just would come across as weird in a movie. You know, I, I, I do think about sort of the idea of the revolutionary war. Can, I picturing Hamilton made into a movie with real explosions and everything going off during, during some of the, some of the wartime things or um, how some of that would work. Even the rewind seems like it might feel a little bit false in, in a movie where, where on stage, I don't know what it is about it, but we are just, Maybe it's because we're supposed to, we don't get fully absorbed in, in kind of this other reality. When you go into a movie, you're being sort of sucked into this other world. When you're going into a play, you know you're at a play. I mean, there is, there is something on stage going on that does not reflect any reality that you understand. You know those are actors. You know, and of course, you know this in, in, in movies too, but I think it hits a different sort of brave, brain pattern when it's in an actual theater. Uh, right. It's just kind of fascinating. It's like it's a, it's like a we talk about the uncanny valley effect when it comes to computer generated graphics and when the closer they become to looking like live action, it's almost like the more they throw our brain off. And in movies, you know that in that medium and they have more access to go on location, to have costumes, to have, you know, to have different settings that look right and sound right. So you can perfectly recreate whatever you need to do on stage. 
you come in knowing they're bound by significant limitations. They can't leave this little rectangle of space and they only have so much backstage space to move props in and out and to move settings in and out. And so it's like we allow ourselves to, to disconnect those pieces that in movies we have higher expectations that they meet. It's like, well, you could have gone and filmed in a better location or this, that, or the other thing on stage. We have to let go of that and say, okay, dazzle me with how creatively you use the same space that is given to everyone else. Yep. And in movies, we don't kind of let them have that excuse. I totally agree with you. I also think that one one of the interesting things about plays is that in musicals, especially is it allows you, I think, to appreciate the, the performances more. I mean, I think that I notice the quality of the singers better when I'm watching an actual play on stage. I mean, I think some of the performances that we saw in Hamilton were just drop dead. Awesome. Renee Elise Goldsberry, who plays Angelica has one of the coolest voices I've ever heard on stage. Um, David Deeks was, was fantastic in this. You, you feel sort of that presence that, that you feel like you're in the presence of talent in a way that you don't necessarily feel like in movies. Right, because even in our our best musical movies, the singers are being recorded in a studio and dubbed over the top, and their voices are being dubbed over the top of their singing performances in film to get that higher quality edge. That's not, you don't get that on stage. And so to hear these singers reaching those levels in a live performance setting, like again, your brain just knows, how are they doing that right now? When, Like you said, when David Diggs, he literally has a point where he says 19 words in three seconds. <laughs> it's incredible. It really is. It's amazing. And you're like, he had to do that live on stage in front of people night after night. Like that's an impressive feat. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you think had the, who do you think was most impressive in Hamilton to you? Who had the best performance? Frankly, uh, my, here I have to say it was, um, what's his name? His name is Jonathan Groff. Yes, King George. As King George was unexpectedly brilliant. And I loved every second he was on stage. And my biggest complaint with the second half of Hamilton was that he was not on stage more. <laughs> he was he was pretty delightful, I do have to say. He was he was a lot of fun. Because um, we typically don't think of stage acting as being a great place for really nuanced performance. Right. You have to be big and bold and brash. And he was. And yet the subtleties in his eyes, in his movements, in, with his shoulders, you know, in his kind of staccato delivery at times was every bit of it. You just I couldn't find anything I did not like about the way he played that role. Three days later, I found myself humming that song as I was, you know, going to the car. It was he was he was kind of a hoot. I thought that he was, he was really good. Now he didn't have necessarily the, the showiest role on stage, but he performed what he needed to do really well. Right. He stole it from, with very limited stage time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, beyond that, beyond that, I, I did personally, I was a big fan of Davy Diggs. I thought, you know, his between Lafayette and Jefferson, I really appreciated the energy he brought to the role. Yeah. Um, but but there was hardly anybody that you felt disappointed in. Like actually to the point where you have to say Lin-Manuel Miranda is the worst one in the show. I would totally agree. I would totally agree. I mean, everybody else was so spectacular. They had these fantastic voices. They conveyed what they needed to so eloquently through, through their song. And 
in comparison, Miranda just wasn't, he wasn't all that. He was, he was great for the role, but you right. tell that his, his voice wasn't necessarily like Leslie Odom who, who played Aaron Burr. Right. Davy Diggs. He didn't have that, that ability to, to, well, although he did rattle off. He wasn't smooth. He wasn't smooth. He wasn't like, he was always, he was on key and yeah. he was, he had the emotion and he captured all of that, but he did not have that operatic clean crisp voice that everybody else had right. his voice cracked and it broke and it squeaked you know it it felt it felt because of the talent he was surrounded with it ends up feeling out of place and yet he does a great job with the role right exactly it, it was interesting and you have to give him credit i mean he he wrote the whole gosh darn thing you know? <laughs> really <a> talented <laughs> it really is but i was just checking out the tony awards that this got and it got a ton of tony awards and it was interesting that leslie odom got it for um for aaron burr he was actually he won it for lead performer uh so miranda didn't get it for lead performer and then it was uh for for the supporting the featured performance as they call it it was uh it was david diggs and david diggs and david excuse me and then Renee Elise Goldsberry went for for best featured actress. So I I thought it was interesting that he had that caliber of a cast to, you know, sweep three of the four big acting awards for the Tony yeah. year it was nominated. Yeah, I I uh, I came in a little bit skeptical because I'd heard all the Hamiltonians, the Hamill fans, the Hamill Squad, whatever you call them, uh, had been hyping it up for a while, right? And everybody loves the soundtrack, and this is amazing. I'd seen it all over Twitter for years. But uh, I have to say, I ended up enjoying it more than I thought I would. Although, <laughs> as much as I've been lavishing it, it still feels long. Two hours and 40 minutes. Nothing to sneeze yeah. at. I, uh, as we watched it, I remember hitting a point at about the hour, hour and 10 minute mark where I was like, whew, we got to be close to the end of this thing. And it's like, oh, no, we're not to intermission yet. <laughs> but like my sense was we've been here for a really long time. <laughs> that is pretty interesting. Now, I... I've watched it twice, and one time I watched it in the full sitting for review. But when I watched it with my wife, we spaced it out over two nights. That seemed to work just fine. I don't think it lost anything by no, watching. That's how we did it, and and then going to to chapter two, so to speak, because yeah. I just don't think that we're used to. I mean, they always say our our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter, right? Two hours and forty minutes—that's a commitment. It really is, so, especially when you have kids. You know, you got work, you got dinner, you got responsibilities by the time you go to sit down you're like i i need something for like an hour you know maybe three tv shows maybe half a movie yeah no that's it, that's the way most of us live now i mean we just don't have the time to dedicate to to almost three hours of entertainment anymore it didn't feel long to me and yet it definitely felt long to me you know it, it right it's not it, right it doesn't feel it does not very often feel inappropriately long the way I the way I personally felt about Lawrence of Arabia, which was a where, uh, in spite of all of its qualities, there's just times where you're like, okay, we've been in the desert for ten minutes. Can we just could we cut that to two minutes? You know, I feel that two minutes would have been long. Uh, Hamilton is packing so much information into every single second. Again, sometimes six words per second. Yeah. Well, and, and keep in mind, I mean, he's in some ways you're getting off easy with three hours worth of musical because the biography right. I think is 800, 900 pages. That's a ton of information and he gets a lot of it in. Right. Um, it, it's, it's pretty compelling. Yeah. I think, I honestly think that in terms of 
and I am no musical expert. I haven't seen any of the big modern ones. I've never seen Cats. I've never seen, you know, a lot of these other ones that people talk about all the time. Um, in terms of like a modern day musical, man, I think Hamilton's an achievement. It's, it is, it is worth all the praise it gets. You know, honestly, it, it just, it just feels like it's a really worthwhile watch with a few content caveats, but a really worthwhile watch. Yeah. There you have it. Have you watched Hamilton on Disney Plus? We have. Have you seen it on Broadway? We haven't. <laughs> but we'd love to hear about your experiences on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Now we've talked about a, uh, a stage musical that was filmed and released on streaming, but now it's time to talk about our favorite or the best, depending on which one of us you are, Broadway to film adaptations in Rank Geeks. The stage has shifted once more. Two smelly nerds enter. One stage right, one stage left. They move surreptitiously towards center stage, a list in hand. One with a quill, the other a smartphone. <laughs> They're here to tell you in their admittedly fanboy and know-it-all glory. <laughs> Which Broadway plays, musicals, have been best adapted Onto the silver screen. Paul, do you want to just, you have any caveats you need to throw out here? Or you just want to dive right in. Yeah, it, it, it feels like breaking from tradition if I don't have a caveat, doesn't it? Um, Probably. Yeah, you know, but I think that this is pretty straightforward. I will say that I purposefully excluded Hamilton from the list. Oh, so I did not include it on my list, but I will tell you where it would have landed had I done so. Um, yeah, I, I think we can just dive right in. I, and, and we should probably preface this by saying neither of us are musical wonks. You know, there's right. a lot of really classic musicals that I've never seen. There's definitely a lot of modern musicals that I've never seen. But, you know, we both like music, right? We both enjoy music, and I think uh, the fact that we're not musical wonks gives us a unique perspective to tell the people which ones they'll enjoy the most. Because, you know, the musical wonks aren't always taking into account the people's tastes. Right. And so I think here we're representing the people's tastes. It's a populist take. That's right. Hey, did exactly. you know that I was also, you always talk about your musical experience. I was also in a musical. Where are you now? Which one? Oliver. Ah, Oliver. I, Exclamation I, point. Exactly. I played Fagin. As a matter of fact, really, why me? Sob. That's exactly right. Might be my favorite stage role ever. Because you played it. <laughs> you I play will say, songs? what's that? I can sing a few songs for you if you'd like. But... Well, you know, uh, I think at our next dinner party, that should be the <laughs> the keynote. Anyway, anyway. Right. Uh, I will say I also left Hamilton off of this list just because I knew we were going to talk about it so much elsewhere that I figured I'd give you the, the best of the rest. Because Hamilton would have landed at right around number one. Would it? On my list. Very uh, I, the one I have at number one, well, time will tell because I sing this other one a lot. Uh, so we'll see if Hamilton stands the test of time. But in terms of just pure enjoyment, it would have been right up there at the top. So there you go. Gotcha. Paul, 
number five on your list of best film adaptations of Broadway. Number shows. five on my list of favorite film adaptations was 2002's Chicago. Chi-Town. Starring Renee Zellweger, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Um, it was pretty entertaining. And I got to admit that I think I, I have long had a crush on Catherine Zeta-Jones for some reason. I, uh, I really liked her in Zorro. Let's just say that. <laughs> so I was always rooting for her to, you know, get an Oscar. And she did for this role. Um, she was fantastic in Chicago. Renee Zellweger was fantastic in it as well. You have some really good performances. It's not quite the uplifting musical that you typically think of. Um, it's pretty dark. It's pretty grimy. It has some some weird um, wrinkles to it, which I think both help and in a way hurt it, but it's awfully entertaining. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I have to say here, I have neither seen Chicago in any format, nor even been tempted to. <laughs> and I don't know exactly why. Like, I just, it's one that in my mind's eye, I've always thought, eh, not my thing. And I have no reason that I can recall to think that. It's just how I feel. Catherine Zeta-Jones. That's all the reason you need. That is it doesn't all, seem like that's all the reason I need. That's all the reason you need. Richard Gere is in it too, if you care about it. I'm not, not a Richard Gere fan. There's the... Will Ferrell's sidekick in so many movies is in it. I forget his name. John C. Riley. That's it. Very good. See, that might be reason enough for me to see it. He's actually super good in this. Basically, John C. Riley and anything that's not R-rated is kind of my jam. <laughs> he like where they had to put some they put some constraints on him, so he's just not completely foul. I'm like, all right. He he is definitely constrained in this one. He plays kind of a sad character. It's really yeah. It's it's something I would encourage you to watch. It's worth. Even if you don't like Renee or, or Catherine Zeta-Jones, it's still worth seeing. As a John C. Riley trivia tidbit, he was in the early 2000s. I believe it was 2002. He was cast in a movie to play the husband of Jennifer Aniston. No way. Which, what? Like, John, you've seen John C. Riley. You've seen Jennifer Aniston. I'm supposed to believe that they're married in this film? Clearly a fantasy epic. That's right. I was like, how did I, I, I was just stunned that he didn't direct it and write it <laughs> with the sole purpose of getting to have Jennifer Aniston be his wife character. All right. Number five on my list uh, in a unusual swap of timelines, Paul's typically dredging up the past, but here I go back into the 1960s to 1967 to say that number five on my list is a musical called how to succeed in business without really trying. Interesting. All right. So never heard of it. No, it, it, here's here's the thing. I I have never seen it, except for a high school production. Oddly enough, we went to we went to a a, a friend son was was in the show. It was it was pretty entertaining, but I can't say I I'm very familiar with the Hollywood version of it. Yeah. So uh, how to succeed in business without really trying? I watched in this phase where my parents were kind of taking us through some of the ones like musicals and movies and plays that were classic to them, either because they played a role in them or it was a favorite of theirs growing up or they, or, or, and also at the same time, we were watching a lot of Jerry Lewis movies because they were fans of Jerry Lewis and how to succeed in business without really trying is not a Jerry Lewis film, but it has a Jerry Lewis esque main character who is a window washer who is determined to rise through the corporate ranks and he's armed with this book called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And so you just have these madcap, ridiculous 
business, office, corporate bureaucracy antics guiding this bumbling character from the bottom to the top. And even as a kid who was not that into musicals, who is not that into um, corporate bureaucracy, <laughs> I found how to succeed in business without really trying to be very entertaining. And it, like, it's one that I still remember. And even think now, having brought it up on this list, like I should see if I should watch it with my kids. You know, honestly, because I really did enjoy the high school <laughs> version that I saw much more than I expected to, it does make me want to see the movie. Did, do you, you should... remember who stars in it? Uh, so it stars, um, Robert Morse is the main character of Jay Pierpoint Finch, Pierpont Finch, uh, Michelle Lee is in it, uh, Rudy Valley, um, Maureen Arthur, Arthur, Anthony Scooter Teague, not like big names that I'm very familiar with. Yeah. Those, those sound like more B-list actors, you know, than, than, you know, like A-listers for the time, but still, right. I mean, recognizable names. I mean, for some, so there you go. <laughs> for old people like me. Yeah, not for me. I have no idea who they are. Although 1967 even predates me, but that's true. we are again are going in the opposite direction for my number, number four. Um, this would be a movie from 2012. Uh, on one of the most famous musicals, Broadway musicals of all time, um, Les Miserables. I think the C S is quiet. Actually, it's silent. Yeah, Les Miserables. Yes, Les Miserables. Um, I really dug this movie. I it, this was the first time I had ever been exposed to Les Mis. Honestly, even though oh, you never read the book. Never read the book. Never saw the play. Oh. Never did. I bought the book after I saw the movie. Actually, because obviously it has some, some pretty deep spiritual undertones that I kind of dig. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of people have taken issue with some of the singing. It stars uh, definitely an A-list cast. It stars, you know, Russell Crowe, Hugh Jackman, Anne Hathaway. These are all definitely A-listers, but not for their singing necessarily. Um, but I thought they did a fine job. I did not find their singing nearly as, as distracting as some people did. And I thought Anne Hathaway's song, I Dream Dream, was one of the most amazing moments of, on film of that year. I thought it was incredible. Mm. Um, so to be exposed to that really resonant story for the very first time in that movie maybe biases me toward this particular movie. I thought it was really great. And it, it's still something that even as I talk about it now, I kind of want to watch again. It's funny because Les Miserables is a story that I have never watched on screen. <laughs> I read the book. I have seen it on stage. But I have not watched the Liam Neeson non-musical version, nor have I watched the musical version. Very interesting. Very interesting. But the book is fantastic. I love the book. Yeah. The Hugh book, did a fantastic job. The book feels a little intimidating because it's like 2,500 pages long. And and I, I'm typically not scared away by that, but I also, I don't know. I, I, just, I just haven't been able to sit down and, and read it. So maybe by the next time we convene for a, another podcast, I will have read it. And I can read the book. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you definitely have to break it up into a couple of nights. <laughs> I can start reading now, as a matter of fact, while you do your number four. That's right. Uh, number four for me is a is actually one that I have been in, so that we previewed this a little bit earlier, uh, but it is Fiddler on the Roof. I was in this play as a, a senior in high school, uh, but I had seen and I'd actually read the book and seen the movie prior to... Uh, being in the show myself. So being in it was not my first exposure to it. This was one that my parents were into. Um, 
I did not get a chance to confirm this factoid with my parents. I believe it is one they saw off Broadway in Chicago. Ooh, very cool. With, uh, I, th- I think that was with Zero Mostel at the time. But he was not the one who made it famous. The one like in ter- well, he's the one who made it famous on American stage. But Topol was the one who made it famous in the cinema, cinematic version of the play, the adaptation of the play. And um, it's one that I really appreciate and enjoy the way the songs really develop the richness of the community and the faith tradition and the emotional an- like anguish of the time yeah. and the place. Uh, it's not always necessarily driving the story along because there's not a huge amount of story to be driven. It's really meant as a character study, right? A community study. And I think, uh, again, it was one that even as a child where a lot of it is romance-based, I really appreciated sort of the richness and the melancholy with a bit of hope, you know, sprinkled in to the the tone of the film and the character of Tevye, uh, where I sing a lot of, Fiddler on the Roof song still. Of course, that being probably mostly a product of having heard them a thousand times during rehearsal. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I think that many people would agree with you on this one. Um, Fiddler on the Roof is one of the all-time classics. I actually watched it for the first time a few years ago because I had heard so much about it. It's, you know, this, you know, marvel of cinematic wonderment and well, great music. <laughs> I wouldn't call it that, but it's a good adaptation of a musical. <laughs> and And I watched it and I was, it didn't make my list in part because, man, I didn't realize how depressing that thing was. I yeah. I am, have grown up in a tradition where, you know, musicals tend to be happy stories and they have happy <laughs> <in> the rain. <laughs> exactly. That's a great musical. Great. But Fiddler on the Roof was kind of a downer where all these, I, it's it was, it was much gloomier than i expected and i think your word melancholy with a touch of hope that's a fair characterization but for me the melancholy the heavy melancholy was so unexpected i can't love this this musical i I like a lot of the music in it can't love the musical yeah and it's a lot it is a long one too it runs just over three hours so it's another one that's a you know two or three sittings worth of of film but if i was a rich man I can sing it. I can sing it, guys. Yeah. Cast me in the red in the next, yeah, the next uh, update. So there you go. Yeah, instead of Topol, it'll be Robel. Robel. Number three for me. This has a big backstory to it. <laughs> Ninth- a a Doofenshmirtzian backstory, perchance. <laughs> Number three, 1965's The Sound of Music. The hills are alive. Yeah. So this is kind of funny because when I think about The Sound of Music, just in abstract, it, it actually didn't get very good reviews when it first came out. You know, a lot of people thought it was sort of sentimentalist schlock, you know. Um, Christopher Plummer notoriously hates it. He cannot even stomach the movie. Um and and when I think about it, I think, oh, this really doesn't compare to some of the best musicals out there, right? But then I think about how much I enjoy it every single time I've watched it. And I've watched it a bunch because it was my grandma's favorite movie of all time. Um, 
there's something really charming about this this musical. I, I I love the little puppet show. I love Julie Andrews singing her song as she's biking down the road. It's all great. Um, and, and it holds for me one of the one of my favorite childhood memories. When we were over at my grandma's house for Thanksgiving, we were watching uh, The Sound of Music on TV. And they had just this little tiny living room that had like four good seats. You could only have four good seats where you could actually see the screen. There right. were seven of us there. And so what we would end up doing is we would just sit there until the next commercial break. This was actually on TV. We would sit there until the next commercial break. And then my grandma, as soon as the commercial came on, she would shout, switch! And <laughs> move a seat so that we all had a chance to sit in a good seat. So because of that, I may be a little bit biased toward the sound of music. You could have an equally nice and equally miserable viewing experience. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, because with commercials, the runtime on that bad boy. Oh, yeah. It's, it's long is significant but edelweiss that might be one of the prettiest songs actually i think my grandma actually had it sung at her funeral she loved it so much it's one of the prettiest oh. songs ever he it is it is a really good one and it's fitting um that is number three on your list because it's number three on my list no way was the sound of music wow did your it, grandma also make you switch chairs while you were watching it she did not uh my my family's affinity for it was my dad's, you know, my dad's own uh, Uncle Rico moment, except <laughs> was that he played Captain Von Trapp in high school. Oh. He had, you know, he had the lead in high school in The Sound of Music. So, of course, as we watched it, it was, ah, can you picture dad doing this in high school? <laughs> a plumber, to, to say the least. Um, and so, and my mom was a huge Julie Andrews fan. And it does have some infectious songs that really do stick with you. And also, you know, for a young child who is just learning to deal with nuance and darkness, and uh, it has a darker ending to it than yeah. your standard musical, but still not that dark. Not so dark as to completely ruin uh, your night. Yeah. You know, yeah. It ends on a much more hopeful note. Yeah. Both Fiddler of the Roof and The Sound of Music have these people trudging off into who knows what future. But right. The Sound of Music has much prettier scenery. Yeah, and much more uplifting, inspirational music. Climb every mountain. That's right. Like, and and we liked it so much that my parents ended up getting like the the book about the von Trops after they left Austria and came to America in their life, and and that was a fun read. We read through it as a family, you know, every night for quite a while, going through that book. Um, and so for all of those reasons, it still holds a special place in my personal heart. But I also think. For as silly and schmaltzy as some of the songs can be, uh, they're very singable. And that's an important quality in a movie musical. And uh, the cinematography, you obviously got some beautiful Austrian backdrops. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. This is the point where if we had included Hamilton on our list, I would have dropped Hamilton in right here. At number two. Number three. And oh, number three. Sound music would have would have pushed it down a bit, but... As it is, I shall go on to my number two. Again, from 1960s. This one from 1961. West Side Story. West Side Story. West Side uh, Story. When I was a little kid, um, a very little kid, I would I was sort of looking around my parents' house for like some records, some some actual albums that that would resemble rock music, and. They had nothing of the sort, nothing of the sort. 
but they did have a soundtrack for West Side Story, which I ended up playing because it felt, you know, it had like a picture book in it. And you saw some people with knives and gangs and all this sort of stuff. So it seemed like it was it was as edgy as I could get in my parents' house and I was five. <laughs> Well, I would listen to that music a lot. <laughs> That's exactly right. Wow. Your parents are looking around, waiting to get shivved. <laughs> like, where is he? Where is he? This is probably why I never really joined a gang. I just had the wrong impression of what gang life was going to be like. But when I saw the movie much later, um, I was pretty impressed with the movie too. You know, the choreography is great. The dances are fantastic. You don't necessarily, um, the idea of, of gang members sort of doing this dance fight is probably not very realistic um, <laughs> but it was still pretty compelling and uh, one of the reasons why i loved it is because i thought rita moreno was absolutely riveting in this thing she won an oscar for her portrayal in this and and she deserved it very much uh she can sing she can dance she can act she can be funny um this was this was outside of the electric company my first exposure to, to rita moreno and and man she lived up to to her billing for sure yeah, I, it's one of those that I think had I had my parents introduced us to it in that formative age where they were we were watching Guys and Dolls and the Pajama Factory and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. I have to imagine I would have appreciated it differently than I did coming across it as a young adult, probably in my late teens, early twenties. And I came in while my wife was watching it on TV because I think her mom liked it, and she was watching it on TV. And I came in like right around the dance fight sequence. <laughs> And, and I just couldn't appreciate it for anything else other than the fact that it's hilariously outdated now in my mind and on film, you know, like and it's supposed to be all gritty and they're all serious and they're spinning and twirling and, you know, well, and I just thought it was so funny. And I infuriated my wife by laughing at the the entire time. Yeah. And so I haven't seen the rest of the movie because I got kicked out of watching it. <laughs> that is really the weird thing about musicals, right? Is because every single one of them you feel could be, a Simpsons takeoff of itself. <laughs> when I when I first heard the idea that they were making a musical out of out of Alexander Hamilton's life, I thought, oh, that's got to be a joke. That cannot work. <laughs> and honestly, for the first five minutes I was watching it, I was thinking, uh, is this going to work or not? You have these people sort of dancing a little bit, twirling around, gyrating as they're reciting these historical things, and it felt weird. So either you sink into the space that a musical wants you to sink into, or you don't, and it becomes sort of laughable. And, and Hamilton really does that well. West Side Story, because it is now, oh my goodness, 60 years old, just about. Yeah. It, it probably has a harder time reaching certain people. I'm curious to see. We do have a, a reboot scheduled right now for the end of 2020 with Ansel Elgort from Baby Driver, right? Oh, very We'll see if it gets dropped. It's, it was supposed to come out you know, around Christmas time this year. We'll see if that still happens or not. Um, Some movies but, I don't think should be re rebooted. This is one of them. <laughs> I guess we'll find out what happens. It's too late. Uh, number two for me was an interesting one, the way I kept kind of bumping it up my list because I didn't really expect it to. It was one that I, I didn't love so much at the time when I first saw it, but I ended up enjoying a lot of its parts more than the sum total of what it was. And uh, that is 2014's Into the Woods. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, as a movie, there's certain things about it that don't fully come around uh, in a way that I wanted it to, narratively speaking. And yet, the 
the different characters, the likability factor of pretty much everybody they cast in the Hollywood version of this film. Um, and even sort of the deliciously deplorable uh, characters that they had in this film all ended up being really entertaining on their own and having some really catchy songs. Like the music just steals the show in into the woods as is not always the case in some of these musicals, um, which seems odd for a musical, but uh, like you just end up really being drawn into the story of the baker and his wife or of, uh, you know, the, the princess or the princess would be princess fleeing the castle and, um, the interconnectedness between these tales, there's a lot of promise to it. And the music is really good. And it ends up being a, if not a perfect movie, a really entertaining and delightful watch. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This was a movie that I actually had sort of on my list of considerations because I remember when I reviewed it, I enjoyed it. And Emily Blunt for me was sort of a revelation. I did not know that she yeah. could sing like she could sing. Um, but as I was considering it, it's interesting that you say the music was so strong. Granted, I have only seen it once. I had no recollection of any music at all. Uh, Nothing stuck into my brain as, as like a, a, a musical number at all. Other than I think Emily Blunt did whatever she did pretty well. <laughs> so in that, and I figured, you know, if I can't actually think of a song that I really liked or hum it a little bit, it probably doesn't deserve to be on the list. So it was out. Certainly not for you. Yeah. All right. Number one, though. So number one for me, once again, going back into the past. Um, and Jake, if you have not seen this, it is definitely making your backlist hall of shame because you okay. definitely have to. It is 1964's My Fair Lady. I have seen My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady, I think, is one of not only one of the more entertaining musicals, one of the more entertaining movies that I, I have seen. It is just a fun, fun movie. Um, Audrey Hepburn is fantastic in it. She, uh, she is really funny. Um, she stars as this, uh, ill-spoken, uh, English flower sales person who is taken under the wing by, by this speech therapist, essentially, uh, played by Rex Harrison, who doesn't actually sing at all in this movie. Um, but it, it becomes a really fantastic, um, just story of the two of them. And Audrey Hepburn steals the show. It's interesting because when the movie first came out, um, Julie Andrews had actually started it on Broadway. And the the filmmakers didn't want Julie Andrews to be in it because she was only known for Broadway. She wasn't any sort of film actor. So she instead went on to play Mary Poppins and won an Oscar for that. Audrey Hepburn was fantastic in this. I, I as, as much as I like Julie Andrews, Audrey Hepburn is the quintessential Eliza Doolittle for me. So, yeah, it's super fun. Super fun movie. Super great to watch with kids. I, I really dug it. It's funny because my experience with My Fair Lady is almost a reverse on what I just said. I thought my experience would be would, if I had watched West Side Story as a young man. Like whatever point my parents finally or my mom finally had me watch My Fair Lady, I was I think just at the right age where I was like, ah, that's not my thing. Like all this – British snobby high society crap. Like that's not my jam. And like, it just, it did not feel, it was not, it was not one that I appreciated very much at the time because my attitude about it was not right. I think it must've been right on that cusp of adolescence yeah. where I was losing that wonderment of yeah. late elementary school where you still have that childlikeness and now you're starting to get moodier and, yeah. you know, be like, I'm not into that mom and dad. What are you doing? <laughs> you're in your football years. You weren't going to be watching my fair lady. Right. 
So it's one that I think maybe I would have appreciated more had I watched it. I don't, maybe I would have appreciated it more if I watched it earlier or if I just waited a couple of years till I was in my mid twenties to, to watch it. Yeah. So it's super fun. I really, I really dig it. If I was going to make a list of all my favorite musicals, I think this would probably be second on my list behind, of course, singing in the rain behind singing in the rain. Number one for me was the one I was most surprised by. Uh, in fact, I had had no clue what it was about. Uh, had never heard of the play. Had uh, didn't even. I don't think I had even seen a trailer for it. But I was with a friend, and we were going to do a double feature, and so we watched the. Uh, let me make sure I get this right. I'll look up the dates just to confirm this because my memory is fading. Yep, that's right. Uh, we had watched the Golden Compass. So this was 2007, but in theaters at the same time, my friend was like, we should go watch afterwards the Sweeney Todd movie. (laughs) And I was like, okay, like, I don't, I have no clue. I didn't even know it was a musical and it blew me away. So I watched it in theaters as an 18 year old football player. Uh, This was pre Fiddler on the Roof. I was uh, in between like anyways and went and watched Sweeney Todd in the theaters and was blown away with the music with the the storytelling the cinematic version like I was I was drawn in I was sucked in I had no clue it hit me out of nowhere I still sing many of the songs down by the sea um, is one that frequently pops into my mind Um, nothing's going to harm you Uh, that's another one I'm pretty sure that's the title of it that pops into my head all the time uh the meat pies song as dark and delicious and terrible as it is. Uh, like it's, it's very me of the time, this dark comedy, this dark comedy, dark comedic tragedy of a film with this just stunning vocal performances, not by everybody. I think Depp and Bonham Carter got a little bit of flack, but some of the music in there is just really, really good. So there you go. Yeah. Number one on my list, the rated R version of Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of fleet street. Never even saw it. Never even saw it. I, uh, the only exposure I've had to Sweeney Todd was a college performance, actually, um, which was just fine. And then I saw a snippet of, uh, of it on, on Broadway, just one of those PBS Broadway plays, uh, with Angela Lansbury as the meat pie cooker, whatever her name is. Yeah, uh, Mrs. Levitt. You can't go wrong with Angela Lansbury in anything. It, would, it was almost as good as if Catherine Zeta-Jones had been in the role, too. <laughs> and I mean, when you go back and look at the cast list, I mean, I think we get, you know, we see Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter kind of dominating that front cover, but you had Alan Rickman playing a really crucial role in the film. Timothy Small, uh, Spall, who's always very slimy and like rodent-like in his characters and a very uh, understated for him, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> well, you know, it's amazing how often he shows up in this because he was in Les Mis too. Yeah. So there you go. There's our list of the best Broadway to film adaptations of all time. Uh, uh, I know we missed a bunch that people are going to be up in arms about. So please let us know on Twitter how terrible we are. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time. Negative to say, just send it to, uh, to Jake. Yeah, you can send me all the crit. I'm ready for it. But now it's time for the most least important thing.
Here we are in the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours, turning the big giants of popular culture into wee little gnomes and vice versa. Uh, I can make that joke. I played a gnome once in Rumpelstiltskin. (laughs) I think that qualifies me to to have access to gnome humor. Yeah, I, I usually say no humor, but... Potato, tomato, same <laughs> difference. Uh, I'm starting this off today. Uh, I have been obsessed over the last couple of years and slowly working my way through bit by bit, quote by quote, through a uh, a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by an author named Neil Postman. He wrote it in 1985. The subtitle is Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And essentially he was looking at in the 1980s how perhaps all of our fears about the dystopians of dystopian society in America that had been so heavily focused on 1984 by George Orwell may have been a bit displaced and perhaps we should have been paying more attention to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which actually predated uh, George Orwell's 1984 and looked at a dystopian society wherein you didn't need this really heavy-handed government control because everyone was kept so amused through drugs and entertainment and uh and so it offered a different perspective on how we could oppress ourselves as a populace um and of course i'm not i'm putting a finer point on it than huxley did and uh all of that leading us to this present moment where now 2020 35 years later uh the peacock is debuting a series on the Aldous Huxley Brave New World story that's debuting on July 15th, which is, ironically, the day this podcast comes out to amuse you. <laughs> there, that's not the only irony in this whole thing. It is kind of funny that they're, they're throwing a Brave New World, which talks about, you know, entertainment and all that sort of stuff, sapping our brains away as a television show. I, I think that's pretty intriguing. I'm going to be watching yeah, I'm very curious to see what it takes on because it, he Huxley's he, his only point was not entertainment. There were other components to it, um, and so we'll see what the TV show itself decides to focus on. Of course, Neil Postman wanted to kind of drill in on public discourse and entertainment and television. We'll see if this show shies away from that because it's technically on television, or if it leans into that. Uh, time will tell, but it does have me my interest peaked. Yeah. I, I would have to say that I would agree with you. I'm going to be very interested to see what it, it looks like. Um, since we're on the subject of literature, I wanted to let you know, Jake, about a new literary magazine that has come out very recently. Um, you know, kind of the Correct. reputation that, that literary magazines have, you know, they can be pretty, pretty dense. They can be pretty hoity toity. Um, highfalutin. Highfalutin. Exactly. Um, you need to wear a monocle while reading literary magazines, typically. This one sounds a little bit different. Um, it is called the Taco Bell Quarterly. Yes. This is my jam. How did I not know about this? How did you not know about this? You need to. I'm so ashamed. Yes. The, the, per their website, this is what it says Taco Bell Quarterly is the literary magazine for Taco Bell arts and letters. Mm. A reaction against everything the gatekeepers, the tastemakers, the hipsters, health food. Artists who wear cute scarves. Wendy's. We seek to demystify what it means to be literary, artistic, important, and elite. 
Ooh, redefining the elite. How perfectly dystopian. <laughs> I swear, that's like simultaneously idiocracy meets Brave New World all at once. It's a it's a pretty interesting development. I, I don't know whether to be appalled or to subscribe. You know? Now, I was so entranced listening to you describe it. Does Do we know when this comes out? How much it's going to cost? Like where we read it? We don't know any of this yet. It is actually out right now. Like the first issue came out now. Um, it's out now, but we don't know how to get it. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> details, Paul. Details. Actually, it's volume two is out already. So, February twenty twenty. Oh. Um, you can find it online if you just actually go to uh, Taco Bell Quarterly. Just Google it on, and it's tacobellquarterly.org. dot So, mm. submission guidelines. It has submission guidelines. Um, ah. The very first thing on their Q and A is: Is this a joke? No, they say. This is a real literary magazine for you to submit your literary Taco Bell writing, like the Paris Review, Granta, Plowshares, Taco Bell Quarterly. Huh. <laughs> it makes me think of when Chipotle did that with their cups. Do you remember this? When they wanted you to submit like short stories for their cups, and they had like a whole contest where they wanted you to write these, you know, high class, high society, but tongue in cheekly so stories for their. And they and like the winning, they'd select half a dozen to a dozen winning entries that would then go on their cups and people could read their cups, you know, as they enjoyed Chipotle with their friends. <laughs> That's pretty great. Okay. So, so I clicked on, you can read the whole volume two right online. So this is, this is with fire sauce. This is a poem. I was flirting with the night crew when a girl I hated in high school ran into the Taco Bell screaming, oh my God, girl, I think your car is on fire. True story. Still got nachos. <laughs> Still got nachos. Well, I know how I'm spending the rest of my evening. Uh, Thank you, Taco Bell. Uh, so there you have it. The most least important thing. Paul wins. <laughs> Drop the mic. It's time to go eat. At a Taco Bell. Get them nachos. <laughs> Get that grilled stuffed burrito, or better yet, Doritos Locos Taco. Those cinnamon twists are very good. Yeah. Yeah, it seems in this age of uh, social media, as they uh, are trying to appeal to these younger crowds, you know, you got Wendy's dropping rap tracks, like, and Taco Bell dropping a literary magazine. Can't go wrong with that. Can't go wrong with that. 2020 isn't all bad. Yeah. And then you have something to read in the bathroom after you have eaten Taco Bell. It's not a problem for me, but <laughs> I've heard some people have wimpier bowels than I do. <laughs> Jake Roberson, his bowels show Taco Bell who's boss. It's my new going to be my new Twitter bio. <laughs> oh well, that about does it for us today. You can come check us out on Twitter, talk to us, laugh with us, share your favorite Taco Bell poem with us. On the Twitter, I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I am at AC Paul. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. sounds pretty great i i'm i'm reading these poems i kind of love them i may have to submit something you should submit some
the Quesarita Re- Requiem. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> Eating you, your voice rings my heart. A language turned into light waves, traveling at a pace to crack one's soul. 